Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. So uh, welcome everybody. Tonight we are going to be looking at Psalm 18 and 19. Uh, Psalm 18 is interesting because it is one of the longest psalms in the book of Psalms. Uh, Clocking in at 50 verses, I think there are three or four out of the entire 150 that are longer than it. Um, The rest of them are, you know, Short of that. I think it might be one or two that's the same, but so it's up there with the longest ones. So we have our, our work cut out for us tonight. Uh, thankfully, 19 is pretty short, so I'm just going to go through both of them and do questions at the end. So Psalm 18 uh, in the ESV is titled, The Lord is My Rock and My Fortress, um, which I think is very fitting, which you'll see shortly as we get into the text. Um, that is that statement or those words are very much recurring themes throughout this psalm. So keep an eye out for that because that's, that's there for a reason. Um, as far as the notation, the choir master part, Psalm of David, we know what that's about already, hopefully. Um, but the rest of it, uh, David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. First of all, this this psalm is addressed to the Lord specifically. This is essentially a prayer um, in song form. This is intended first and foremost to be directed to God. Uh, Secondly, that large statement there combined with another little fact I'll mention makes this possibly the clearest context of a psalm that we have um, because it's actually reprinted. You can find this whole psalm, I would say 98%. There's one little like three-word phrase, I think that's, that's changed, um, in 2 Samuel 22. That's what 2 Samuel 22 is. It's this psalm. Um, and the, the context that that gives us is uh, 2 Samuel 21 is kind of the culmination of David's conflicts. He has uh, already outlived Saul been king for a while, fought many, many wars. Um, He's been on the run a few times, one time from his own son, uh, people trying to usurp his throne. Um, And this battle he's just finished is a major decisive battle with the Philistines um, by which he actually winds up reclaiming the bones of Saul and Jonathan, the son of Saul, uh, best friend to David, um, with the intent of burying them properly, finally so many years after that initial, uh, when Saul actually died fighting the Philistines. Um, And that's why I think he mentions uh, end from the hand of Saul, even though this happened so many years after his initial deliverance from Saul, because this kind of wraps up his whole saga. This is, and I believe, um, I forget where it was, I believe I saw either in a commentary or somewhere else in Samuel, um, that this was his last written psalm. This was the final song he wrote. Um, 
not that he maybe didn't you know, play around with stuff in his last few years alive, but this is his last recorded one at least. Or as I understand it, this is his last recorded one. Uh, so let's see. So yeah, so just to, to keep that in mind, this, this song comes at the end of his, like the culmination of what he's done, and it's directly, directly to God. Um, so it's not really to us, um, and arguably, it's not for us, it's for God, it's David expressing himself to God, though we are still to learn from it. There is still plenty in here that we can take his example to ourselves. So um, we'll go ahead and jump in. Uh, I'll start with verses one to three. Uh, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. There was a song back in the day, basically just that last verse. Um, the opener there. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Uh, note how he starts this uh, prayer, shall we say, song prayer. Um, as I said, he just finished this long series of wars and conflicts in which he did many, many times successfully win uh, battles, he himself fighting alongside his people, to the point where actually in 2 Samuel 21, towards the end, you see him starting to kind of slow down on the battlefield, like not, not fail on the battlefield, but like his age is definitely starting to show. Um, and his men actually pull him aside and say, look, you've, you've hit that age. You're, you're kind of done here. <laughs> it's our, it, we'll, we'll do it now. You're, you're done. Um, but uh, so even after that, at that point, you know, what human eyes would see and declare as a strong and mighty warrior, a victor of his own right, David, de David declares that his strength, the thing that got him through that, is God. God is his strength, not his physical strength. Um, he starts right off the bat by humbling himself and declaring this, this intimacy for his Lord, for his God. Um, and see how he refers to God as his rock uh, and refuge. Um, especially that rock image. That's going to be repeated multiple times. A lot of the words he, he uses for God are repeated a few times in this, but I feel like the rock one comes in much, much more. Um, he desperately wants the hearer to see him as being dependent upon God, not proud in his own standing. Uh, and furthermore, he wants God to know that he understands where he stands before God and how grateful he is to God. Uh, depending on the translation you're using, in these first three verses, you'll see uh, about eight separate words used as descriptors for God here in this chunk. Strength, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn, stronghold, rock, and rock. Now, I said separate, and I said rock twice, I know. Um, they are actually two different words. They both mean rock. One of them means uh, rock as in a crag, um, like a rock that's cleft, a rock that you could get your body into and hide in uh, that could protect you in that way. The second word used for rock actually means like a rock face, a rock wall, or like a solid slab of stone. Just something very, very firm, very hard, very impenetrable. Um, so hopefully you're seeing the theme here, what he's calling God, something that's strong, defensive, solid, impenetrable, this, this powerful, forceful, unshakable kind of an image. 
Um, I do want to take a brief second to look at the term horn of my salvation. I think this can be a tricky word for us um, because we don't really use this as a metaphor for strength these days, so it comes across a little weird. So I wanted to dive a little bit into that. Uh, the word used there is keren, uh, Q-E-R-E-N in the English, and it literally means horn, like the horn on an animal, um, which, it, well, sometimes in the Bible that word can literally mean like it means, a horn on an animal. Uh, it can also mean something that's used, you know, the horn would be used for, like a trumpet, or like a, uh, sometimes they would hollow them out and use them as flasks for oil or for water. Um, so that's when it's used in the literal. Uh, but so often we do see it in this weird way where like he says, horn of my salvation. Uh, in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah, uh, Samuel's mother, when she's thanking God, says that her horn has been exalted. So we see kind of a, an odd usage of this that goes very much outside of the literal. A lot of times actually in Psalms and other places in the Old Testament. Um, and it, is, it's, it, it has, does have further meaning, which I kind of said already, but we do find it even in secular uh, old culture context, the idea of a horn referring to something as having uh, power. You see it sometimes in uh, secular gods might sport horns if they're warlike or have physical prowess. Uh, sometimes a singular horn protruding from the forehead, that was a, a classic um, symbol uh, for power from that era, from that area as well. Um, but yeah, in general, it tends to imply power and strength. Um, the Bible does take it actually a little bit further. Uh, sometimes it, when, it, when the term of a horn is used, it's to call back to the altar in the front of the, the temple courtyard or the tabernacle courtyard. The altar where they actually offer the sacrifice to God has four horns, one on each of the corners. Um, and some of the symbolism there is that, like, for example, a person who was guilty of a serious crime, um, if they were able to get there without having been you know, arrested, thrown in jail and dealt with prior, they could plea for mercy by wrapping their arms around one of the horns on the altar. Um, it was a way of crying out to God and putting yourself at God's mercy um, for asking for forgiveness or you know, stay of pain for, for whatever the crime had been. Um, so even then, it falls up, it's that idea of something that's firm and unshakable, something to hide yourself in, in that the person who was seeking help would grab onto it, seeking salvation, seeking help. Um, so in the Bible as well, the horn will often denote that kind of strength, security, power, you know, sort of like how the secular world would take it, but with that added step of God's security attached to it. So at the, at the end of the day, another metaphor for the strength of God. <laughs> I just wanted to go into a little deeper because we don't hear that one too much today. Um, so yeah, so once again, we have here the traditional kind of Hebrew poetic convention of restating things for emphasis. Um, the sheer amount of times that he restates this point should help us grasp how important it is, how important he considers it. And keep an eye out for that because you're going to see that a lot in this psalm. Um, partially just because it's so long, so it's, yeah, of course, there's more of it in it. Um, but yeah, so let's move on to verses four to six. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. 
In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So first, cords of death, or Sheol. Uh, we've already kind of talked about how Sheol is their idea of the grave. Uh, it's kind of the negative view of an afterlife. Um, that word also implies like the garbage, where the garbage would be, where the refuse would be. So definitely a negative thing. Makes sense that he would link it up to death. Um, the cords term there, literally that word means multiple ropes, but contextually often when that word is used, it's to imply the idea of a net or a snare, uh, something that a wicked person would use to capture another or to subjugate another. Uh, also, uh, I'll note he mentions the torrents, um, implying rushing water as something coming against him. Uh, this, he will actually reference this further on, so I'll leave that alone for now. Um, but yeah, basically we have a bunch of descriptive pictures of despair kind of lumped together here. Uh, how it feels to see wickedness surround you, feel as though you have no way out. We've kind of seen this in a lot of the previous psalms that we've looked at up to this point, uh, if you recall. Um, but, as I read in verse 6, see how quickly in this psalm he shifts his focus to God. Uh, and I'll tell you, he doesn't really go back to the sorrow in, in this psalm. He t that's kind of the most sorrowful he says in this one. Um, and that's the thing is we kind of know already that David is prone to wax sorrowful. You know, some people say that his writings can be very depressing, even a little bit emo from time to time. But I'd point out once again, this is like his final one, right? This is at the end of his journey. Um, all the other Psalms, for the most part, are David in the middle of something or at least in the middle of his life, having just gotten out of a bad situation. So even his ones that are kind of praising and joyful, they're still in the middle of his life, you know? So he's still really thinking about what he went through. And of course there's, you know, stuff that could come up. Um, what we're seeing here with this Psalm is the difference between a person who did trust God in the middle of sorrows and one who looks back upon all his sorrows, recognizing that God has brought him out of all of it. He's at this place where it's almost like he can't even bring himself to dwell on that sorrow because he recognizes just how much God has done for him. Um, just, just watch as we go through the rest of this psalm. Like I said, he'll barely touch on the sorrow, but he's going to continue to revel in what God has done. Let's hop into 7 to 12. And I think, yeah, I had to cut it off a little bit there, so we'll figure that out. Then the earth reeled and rocked the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth and glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the bright, uh, brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Okay, so this is some pretty cool imagery. I really like this section. Very powerful imagery. Reminds me a lot of some of the stuff that people like uh, Daniel saw in their visions. Um, now, we know that God did not literally shake the earth to save David. Uh, he did not rain fire down on David's enemies. Uh, he didn't uh, literally ride an angel, you know, across the battlefields, dropping hailstones on David's enemies. Uh, so what's he getting at here? 
Well, uh, I would submit that what we're seeing here is David clarifying the awesome power of God in a very extreme poetic way. He's trying to exemplify that all of the credit for his past victories must go to God. So it's almost like it would be a disservice for David to just describe the events, you know, in very, you know, Iliad, Odyssey-esque detail, and then throw in at the end, oh yeah, God did that, you know? Um, so metaphorically, what he's doing, we have here, uh, when, or look at it this way, when David was on the run, and he had no hope in his own strength, for David, God himself altered the course of history. Uh, God altered the events of the world to save his servant. Um, and so to David, he did indeed shake the foundations of the world. No, the earth, the physical earth did not shake, but his, his literal events, his life was shaken into place, so to speak. Because um, basically, as far as David's looking at this, shaking the mountains on the horizon, whatever, that doesn't affect me, that's child play compared to a God who can change the events of time and history to take me, a man on the run from his own people, and put him back into power over the people who wanted to kill him just a few days ago. Um, a fellow by the name of Horn uh, put it well when describing uh, how the, the, this description of the earth shaking to, to God moving. Uh, he said, when a monarch is angry and prepares for war, his whole kingdom is instantly in commotion. Universal nature here is represented as feeling the effects of its sovereign's displeasure, and all the visible elements are disordered. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. Now, I, I, I do want to take also a second just to brush something out of the way. Uh, cherubim that it mentions there, uh, just, just in case anybody has the idea of cute little chubby baby angels, um, that's not in scripture. That's nowhere in scripture. Um, in scripture, actually, they're described as grand beings with four faces and four wings and moving swiftly about uh, in these like multiple rings and there's eyes involved. It's crazy. I'm not going to go into detail on them right now. Maybe we'll get to that if we get to like Daniel or Revelation or something. But the point is that their descriptions in scripture, um, possibly metaphorical, but the point is that the description points to the idea of a complete, perfect servant or messenger, um, kind of the, the, the best servant or messenger that a ruler could desire. So yeah, maybe we'll go into that more someday. I just wanted to get that baby cherub image out of everybody's head, which I probably put it right back into everybody's head. Um, <laughs> so I also want to touch on, I thought this was interesting when it says, God made darkness his covering and his canopy around him. Um, I want to dwell on this a minute just to, to put out there that this is not to imply that God works under the cover of darkness or that God works as a villain moving in darkness. Um, rather, the point of that description, the point of that metaphor is that God moves in such a way that none can observe him and none can predict his next move. Uh, Spurgeon actually had a great quote on this. Faith saw him, but no other eye could gaze through. Blessed is the darkness which encurtains my God. If I may not see him, it is sweet to know that he is working in secret for my eternal good. Even fools can believe that God is abroad in the sunshine and the calm, but faith is wise and discerns him in the terrible darkness and the threatening storm. 
Um, also kind of wrapped up in that, um, that last, uh, right towards the end of this chunk, that image of the clouds being thick with water. Um, I, I like that. I like that, that imagery, that, that, that language. It's the idea of uh, a storm just about to break out. You know, it's that, that idea of this massive power and force just barely contained, you know, just about to strike forth. All right, let's look at 13 to 15. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he flashed forth lightnings and routed them, and the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So the, <laughs> the start there, I kind of really like that, where it says, the Lord also thundered in the heavens. It feels like he had like finished a thought, like he had this complete thought about how mighty and powerful God is. And then he thought of something else and was like, oh, God also did this. <laughs> that was fun. Um, but this passage, it, it, what he's more likely trying to do here is kind of reiterate. It's the, like a culmination of the power statement he just made before. Um, he talked about all these mighty things, and now he kind of adds another layer onto it. Um, this image of scattering the arrows all over. Um, it's kind of like if you've ever seen an ancient war epic movie when the soldiers have to hide under their shields because the arrows are coming down so in such numbers. Um, and, uh, and liking also taking that imagery, then combining it back with that clouds rolling in about to storm, he mentions the lightning. And so he's kind of linking up that God controls the elements and sends them down in the same way that soldiers would fire arrows kind of a thing. Um, but then, and I, I do love this part too, he says that the channels of the seas were seen and the foundations of the earth laid bare. So that's like, that's, we're talking about the deepest, darkest waters and you can see the bottom is what he's saying. Um, and the foundations of the earth, like that's you know, the bedrock beneath, the furthest beneath, the center of the earth, if you will. Things that we can't see, basically. Uh, like we still can't access some of that stuff. But the idea is that simply at the rebuke of God, simply an exhale of his nostrils, and the power comes forth to strip the earth to nothing, kind of. It's, it's just the idea that God is so powerful that even an involuntary movement such as a breath out of the nose carries with it world-destroying power, you know, kind of the, which, which hearkens the hearer to be like, oh, what if he, you know, did something intense, you know? <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and move on to verse 16 to 19. Uh, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So the uh, drew me out of many waters. This is that callback I mentioned in verse four that he was gonna refer back to. Um, in verse four, he talks about his enemies being like a torrent, being like rushing waters coming at him. And in here, God drew him out of many waters. Um, many waters typically, Water in scripture, of course, has many, many, many different metaphorical uses, um, but one of the main ones is to imply a large number of people. Uh, usually it's an attacking force, um, but it's it, often a large number of people. Um, 
when it says somebody speaks, like when it says God speaks, like the roaring of waters, it's that it's almost like thousands, you know, the idea of tons of voices, tons of people speaking, that rushing, heavy, intense sound. Um, but so he's, you know, and, and the many waters too, also to point out, when he says many waters, it's not like he's drowning in many different separate waters at the same time, or like he's drowning in all the oceans at once somehow. It's um, uh, just the, the vastness of it. You know, you could almost take that to be like in deep waters with many waves kind of a thing. Um, but uh, I will say uh, Spurgeon actually took the water metaphor in a different direction when he uh, made his commentary on this psalm. Um, the way he, he kind of drew a parallel to the waters of baptism a little bit. Uh, he said, and thus are all believers like their Lord, whose baptism in many waters of agony and his own blood has redeemed us from the wrath to come. Torrents of evil shall not drown the man whose God sitteth upon the floods to restrain their fury. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. But again, note how David declares his enemies that they were too powerful, that they were too mighty for him to deal with. David, the mighty and very competent warrior, makes a general declaration that all of the foes he has faced to date have been too mighty for him. M mind you, he's beaten them. So what he's doing is he's fully giving glory to God for all his past deliverances. <clears throat> he's basically saying, I fought all these enemies, I won, I didn't win, God won. Um, <clears throat> which I think there's, there's something useful for us in that. Uh, I think how often do we become puffed up or proud over our own achievements? Um, I will say the Bible does tell us that it's fair to be reasonably proud of the work of your hands. Uh, when you put in solid, honest work and things go well, you absolutely do have right to rest in that, to enjoy that. But it's God that empowers us to do good. It's God that empowers us to succeed. Um, even when we do our best, you know, if we're taking the idea that I'm in control of myself 100%, even if I do my best, I still have no control over thousands of millions of outside factors that, that I can't touch at all. Those are all fully within God's hands. Um, so let's not forget to give God the glory for everything, first and foremost. Um, then uh, I wanted to address, he mentions, the Lord is my support or my stay, depending on your translation. Um, that word being used there is mishan. It's used to describe a staff. Um, and I will say not a staff like a walking stick. We're talking more like a step, like the, a walking stick is something that one of, you know, a younger person might use just to help them along the journey. We're talking about a staff that an older man might need to lean on for support, that a, a wounded man would need to get from point A to point B. Um, that word, or, or that word also can be used to describe a support as in a support that you might use to prop up a construction piece. Um, the language provides the imagery of God being crucial to our survival in the way that that older wounded man couldn't get to and fro without that staff to lean on and that whatever you're building would crumble without that support structure. That's what he's calling God there. Um, like I said, as opposed to that idea of God just being, it's like, if we look at it like the walking stick way, it's that like God is my co-pilot and he's like, no, 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 no. God's the driver of the car and the seatbelt. God's the whole thing. Um, uh, also, he says God has placed him in a, uh, a broad and spacious place, right? Um, that, I think, gets glossed over because we don't really use terminology, terminology like that either. 
The word there, once again, it literally means broad, spacious, open, big room, kind of like where we are right now. Um, it can be used for a field. It could be used for, like I said, a room. It could be used even for the expanse of the earth, if we're talking from that really far away view kind of a thing. Um, but there's a lot wrapped up in that when it says that God brought him out into the broad place. The, the, the implication there is out of hiding. Um, hiding mean the, the imagery of being a tight, confined space. The idea of pulling yourself into the smallest possible space for the fear of being found and attacked, etc. Um, God has made him so secure that he could be brought out into this wide open space with no fear. That, that space also, it bears that thought of freedom. Freedom to roam and to live. Um, and now, David kind of, he's kind of, kind of uh, start to explain you know, what's going on for the hearer. He gives us the reason why God would do such a thing, why God would, would do all this for him. He says, because he, because God delighted in me. Um, and I will submit, David is not saying this and the things that are about to follow out of pride. This is not, I'm so great and wonderful that God would put me on a pedestal. Um, he's offering himself up as an example of someone who threw himself on the mercy of God and saw the benefit and blessing of it. <clears throat> and let's try to look a little deeper into that as we go on. Yeah, in 20 to 24. Uh, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Okay, according to my righteousness. He said that more than once here. Put a pin in that statement. We're going to loop back around to it according to the cleanness of my hands. Now that should be causing a red flag um, because, and hopefully some of you who have read the story of David are thinking, wait a minute, uh, didn't God actually call David out and point out how much blood he had on his hands for the sins he committed? Um, and yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, so he, he, God did say that. That's why he didn't get to build the temple. So how can God, how can David, I should say, proclaim that God recognizes the cleanness of his hands? Hold on to that as well. Um, look where he says, uh, he says, I've kept the ways of the Lord. Well, but he sinned. He sinned big time. He sinned more than once. <laughs> uh, big sins more than once. Um, hold on to that too. Look at what he says in the end of verse 21. Now, some translations say this different. In uh, in the ESV, he says, um, have not wickedly departed from God. In other translations, it says, I am not guilty of turning from God. Uh, and that's it. That's, that's the linchpin here. That's the thing that holds this together. Um, or at least the first part of it. David absolutely sinned. He absolutely had filthy hands before God. Um, in one of the prior Psalms that we did in this series, I forget which one it is right now, but David acknowledges even that he has no righteousness of his own. Um, and I think that should inform how we read this one. He's aware of that situation. But here's that, that first bit, that first thing that kind of helps us understand what he's getting at. David never turned from God. 
Saul sinned against God as well. But Saul, who was the king before David, he tried to hide it. He rejected God's decrees. He tried to do it on his own. He ignored the sovereignty of God. David sinned against God and owned up to it. He threw himself on God's mercy. Despite his failings, David honored God as God. And when his sin was brought to his attention, he sought God for the way to honor God and get out of it. By not turning from God, by not making himself king in his own life, by submitting himself to God when he did sin, David did keep the ways of the Lord. This is how he has not turned from God's decrees. This is how he is blameless and kept from sin. Uh, look again, now look at verse 24. He repeats verse 20 pretty much. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. And here's the thing that explains it for us. In his sight. That's the thing. Yeah, he recognizes that he's only righteous in God's sight. Um, he knows. He knows that that's, it's only his faith in God. It's only his faith in God that makes him right with God. Um, and I'd submit that this is also a calling forward for us. This also uh, points to the promise of salvation through Jesus. When we accept the sacrifice of Jesus as paying for our sins and making us right with God, we have the right to say that God accepts us and loves us for our righteousness. In that, our righteousness is actually the righteousness of Jesus, credited to us, making us righteous in God's sight. Um, David may not even have fully understood this, but in some beautiful way, as I said, his faith in God made him righteous before God solely on the account of God's mercy and power that he threw himself before. Right. 25 to 30. <clears throat> With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So, God shows himself as uh, merciful to the merciful. Okay, we're capable of mercy, so that doesn't seem too out there. Blameless to the blameless. Okay, now we're definitely not blameless. Now, David may have, in the moment, in the very literal sense, meant that he was blameless in the instances that people brought charges against him or that they attacked him. Um, but I submit that this, once again, is gently speaking forward prophetically to the only blameless man who ever walked the earth, being Jesus himself. Um, calling back to that thing I mentioned before about the righteousness, you know, uh, which would point to since how Jesus is blameless and took the punishment for that which could carry blame for us, we now stand as blameless before God. Um, <clears throat> I'll also just briefly want to touch on some commentators' uh, point that the way this language is used in this specific chunk um, points to God's kind of personal fairness. 
uh, with everyone. It implies apparently how it's worded, uh, a case-by-case -case notion. Um, and I've seen this in a couple of uh, commentators from back in the day said this. So I, I, I guess it makes sense. I don't know enough about Greek or Hebrew, I should say, to really see that for myself. But it implies a case-by-case -case notion that every person stands before God, as Spurgeon put it, weighed by his own scales. Um, to put it simply, without I'm trying to be careful not to make it sound weird, you're not judged by my life and I'm not judged by yours. We are all judged individually by God's judgment, God's perfectly fair uh, rules and method. Um, then let's look at, uh, it says, uh, pure, to the purified, he shows himself pure. Your translation might say, um, to the pure, he shows himself pure, but what the ESV says there, purified, that actually winds up being a better translation of the Hebrew word. Um, there is action involved in that word. It's not just pure as in a descriptor. There's a, there's a move, purified. Something has happened for that word. Um, and once again, that further drives home, like I said, kind of the prophetic salvific angle of this passage. We're not pure by our own right. We were purified by God. And to those of us purified by God, he presents himself as pure in that way. Um, he mentions that basically the humble are saved, the haughty are brought low, um, that he lights our way in the darkness. Um, the, the language he uses there, the strength to outrun a troop, um, that could mean a band of marauders, the way that's used, or it could also mean the other members of a race. Um, it probably means the harsher one in this context, uh, and leap over a wall. Once again, that imagery and the language used could describe simply an obstacle between a runner and victory, but it could also mean an obstacle between somebody who's fleeing and their safety. Um, once again, pretty standard metaphor for God's ability to control the situation, to bring whatever help is needed. Um, verse 30, I think, is interesting because he kind of pulls back into that some of those earlier references, the shield, refuge, that language comes back again. Um, but he's kind of using this to start a new process, new thought process here. When he says, this God, um, he's declaring God preeminent over any other belief. Um, but once again, like I said, he's kind of using this as an intro to the second half of his song, which at first glance might feel like a list of David's accomplishments and feats. But what he's saying is basically this God, this God who allowed the following to happen, this God who I will tell you um, of through my life experience. Kind of, here is my God, let me show you him. Oh, okay, that's where I wanna be, 31 to 36. So, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Uh, is that where I was? Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, again, very cool language here, very poetic convention here. The God who X, he did X. Um, all the credit for these things goes back to God. David makes sure that none of this stays in his hands. 
Um, and like I said, it, it might be hard for us in our Western literary minds to comprehend this as being not self-serving. Uh, but consider this, in ancient poetry, when heroes are praised, the focus is on them. Not their armies, usually, not the people who trained them. Uh, honestly, in most, uh, you know, classic poetry, not even the gods they serve. Even a lot of the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology, you don't see a lot of, you know, so-and-so slew the army of so-and-so because of Zeus. You don't see a lot of that. Um, no, the focus is on the person, the victor. Um, if David wanted to be selfish, he could have easily kept any of these things he's describing for himself. He could have said, you know, for God gave me the strength to do this, and I did this, and then God gave me the strength to do that, and God gave me the strength to do that, and God gave me the strength. You know, he could have kept one and just said, oh, but I did this, you know, but he doesn't. Everything he gives back to God. Um, again, uh, Spurgeon had a very good quote on God's people when they're victorious. It behooves them to be very careful to lay all their laurels at Jehovah's feet, each one of them saying, by my God have I wrought this valiant deed. Um, and he starts by giving up the two biggest items in his life, uh, honestly, his strength, by which he won many wars and killed many enemies. Um, nope, he says not his. He says he was equipped with that from God. And then his blamelessness, his righteousness. He, he, just in case the hearer didn't get it earlier that he was saying his blamelessness and righteousness came from God, he says it again here plainly. God made his way blameless. This is not an inherent blamelessness in him. Um, that image of feet like a deer or like a hind and being set on high places. Uh, the deer being referenced is actually better explained as a type of mountain goat. Uh, found in the Middle East, um, and they're well known for being able to scale practically sheer mountain faces um, because their feet are perfectly designed to support themselves on even just a few inches of an outcropping, such that if you were looking at the mountain from the ground, you wouldn't, it would look sheer. It would look like you cannot climb it. But God designed them to be, like, there's videos you can find on YouTube of these goats, like, all across. It looks like a flat mountain wall, and there's goats, like, on the side of it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, so he's, he's pointing to this image of inhuman surety of footing. Um, and then to follow that up with that bow of bronze imagery, he says, uh, if you weren't aware, bows were really only made out of wood back then. Uh, nowadays, we have kind of composites and plastics, and we do sometimes use metals now, uh, but back then, just wood. They really didn't have the technology to create a metal bow that would have the same elasticity without breaking or falling out of shape. Because if you're not aware, the way bows work, it's primarily the bow itself that does the bending and the stretching to launch the arrow. The string usually is not doesn't have any real elasticity to it. Um, and that's why the wood, they used a good, strong wood. And it would take, honestly, a regular bow takes a lot of strength to string it and put it in place. Um, so the image there of this kind of like ridiculous weapon, shall we say, would be that you have a bow made out of something that a normal human could not bend to use. They, they just would not be able to. It's almost like, take the image of like strong men bending steel bars, you know? And it's so amazing because it's like, well, that's hard. Like nobody, oh, I couldn't do that, could never do that. 
it's, it all wraps together these two images as like a way of saying with God, I'm, I'm more than my own flesh. With God, everything he's done is so miraculous, I may as well have done these impossible things. Um, but I love, I love that he, just, he jumps back in after that to, your gentleness makes me great. Uh, this really, it really is a beautifully crafted psalm. Just as the hearer might be given to over-focus on the war language and God supporting David in war uh, and like maybe focus on God as this God of like hyper-masculine action, very, like I said, once again, very Greek, very, you know, Roman kind of feel. Um, in other warlike nations, David declares that God's own gentleness has been instrumental in all of this. You'd expect him, somebody this time, you'd expect to say, your power makes me great, your force makes me great, or even your greatness makes me great. But no, he uses gentleness. Um, and I know some translations, uh, depending on what you're reading along, it might say your help makes me great. Uh, that's not really a fair translation. The word being used there comes from a root word, which is anva, which actually does mean gentleness or meekness. Um, it's just it's a beautiful reminder right there. Um, our God is so multifaceted and just so perfect. Um, the, uh, the, the imagery he presents of the wide place or the broad path. So it's really just the idea of a large spot, spot that you can step or walk on to prevent falling. Uh, think about the idea of crossing a stream and there's these rocks, maybe they're just about the size of your foot, if that even, and they just kind of stick above the water and you have to use those to cross. Um, now imagine that next to that, let's say there's the same, there's spots to step on, but instead of being little bits of rock sticking up out, they're massive concrete squares and they're like, they're, they're connected even. Like it's, it's very easy to surely walk across that without risking falling. It's that idea of making something with ease that was difficult before. Okay. 37 to 42. Uh, there we go. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Um, okay, this part... Uh, I, re I really think this part's very cool from a poetic standpoint. I'll explain that in a minute. So here in this chunk, David does take a minute to rejoice over his military victories. Um, this whole chunk describes how thoroughly he defeated and destroyed the enemies he faced in battle. But again, note, he never allows himself to rest in that power or victory. It is always the Lord's victory. 37 to 38, he talks about how he chased down his enemies and killed them, but in 39, he clarifies that God equipped him to do that. And also, as it goes on, he, God tipped the scales, so to speak. God made his enemies fall before him. It's almost as though David's not even allowing the hearer to even truly link those battle victories to him at all. And remember, his military victories are legendary. People used to sing songs about how many people he killed. They would sing those songs to praise David and in a national pride sort of way, but he's rejecting that he deserves that praise. 
Um, Matthew Henry put it well in his commentary. He said, many things had contributed to David's advancement, and he owns the hand of God in all of them to teach us to do likewise. Um, and then, the, um, so yeah, as I was saying, this whole chunk, 37 to 42, it's, it really, it does stand on its own as a really cool piece of poetic form. Um, it's kind of a, oh, what's the, what's the thing that is the four, same forwards and backwards? The, the, no, 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 not anagram. A word that's this, palindrome, thank you. It's a, it's a poetic palindrome, this section. Um, it starts with something David did, 37 to 38. He gives God the credit in 39. Then he credits God in 40 to 41 for controlling the situation, not heeding the call of the wicked, that allows what he did in 42. You can literally read 37 to 42, verse by verse, backwards and forwards, and it flows the same. Very cool. <laughs> so I do recommend trying that. Okay. 43 to 45. Oh, we're wrapping it up. Um, where was I? 43. Uh, oop, got to turn the page. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. So this, this part primarily focuses on the success of uh, the success David credits God for giving him as it relates to kingship specifically. Um, delivered me from strife, attacks, contention, whatever your translation of the people. So he, how many times, plenty of times, his own people were against him. Saul was against him. His own son Absalom was against him. Those are probably the two biggest ones, but definitely not the only ones. He had a lot of trouble with various people groups in Israel because um, they, were, they were fractured people. Um, but he fully credits God with allowing the unification under his kingship. And he goes on to even say that foreign nations submitted to him, which is true. All the enemies of Israel, while David was king, ultimately were either destroyed or too afraid to do anything. This is why Solomon had a largely peaceful rule. I don't know that Solomon had any proper wars during his kingship. Um, and I would say that's because David, empowered by God, beat back the surrounding nations so soundly that they wouldn't even try anything for quite a while. It took a long time before anybody started messing with Israel again in any serious way. And now, wrapping it up, 46 to 50. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Another old song there. Um, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. So largely a summary of what's transpired so far. He reiterates those themes, God, the solid and firm rock, God, the one who truly deserve, uh, decided, I should say, the outcomes of nations and rulers. Um, but as a final note, I wanna look at that last verse, great salvation he brings to his king. Um, I think I mentioned this a while ago, but I'm going to do it again just to be safe. Uh, ownership. This is not saying that David is king over God, that David is God's king in that sense, but that God's bringing salvation to a king that he owns. It's the, he's, he's God's king as he, he is a, like a, 
something God owns, yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, goes to show, uh, go, shows God, that's what it is. God shows steadfast love to his anointed uh, or his Messiah. It's that word I mentioned from a couple weeks ago, um, Mashiach, which basically means Messiah. Um, but it also does mean anointed one. It can be used in both ways. Um, so clarified through David and his offspring, the rest of that verse. So this does, in the immediate sense, David is probably calling back to his own anointing. Um, and he probably is a little bit talking about himself and his, his family. But it is also gently prophetic, calling forward to Jesus, being the offspring of David in the flesh, being the true anointed one, the true Messiah, and the true king. Um, kind of like you can't throw a stone in Psalms without hitting a prophecy about Jesus. <laughs> All right. So now let's jump into 19. Uh, see if we can do this pretty quick and, uh, and wrap it up because I know that was a long one. Uh, Psalm 19, to me anyway, seems to be broken up into three sections, um, which could each honestly be titled by their first line. Uh, verses 1 to 6, the heavens declare the glory of God. Verses 7 to 11, the law of the Lord is perfect. And verse 12 to 14, who can discern his errors? Or that might be better read, who can discern or bring understanding to his my errors? Um, or to put it another way, first chunk, nature declares the majesty and splendor of God. Two, the law he has given us is right and true and precious beyond all else. Three, how do I stand up under this? Um, it actually, it almost, the flow of that almost kind of fits that method that Jesse mentioned in the last session, the OAR method. Um, so let's look at verses one to six. Uh, let's see here, to the choir master, Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard and their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, so I want to focus first, focus first on verse 2. Uh, day to day, night to night. This is implying continually um, that there is constantly this universal dissertation explaining the truth of God's glory. Um, when it says that it pours out, um, that, that word pours is very appropriate. If you have another translation, it might say utter, which is technically correct because it does have to do with speaking, um, but the imagery that pours is much more close to the original word. The imagery is that of a babbling brook, constantly spitting out water. Just that this, once again, that this, is, this declaration from nature is constant and never ending. Um, verse three, uh, I took this personally to mean that there's no audible speech, that there are no humanly discernible words, that this teaching is prevented to us, but not via lecture, not via auditory lecture. However, um, a lot of uh, commentators 
uh, take it that a little differently. They suggest that when it says um, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard, um, that it's actually saying that there's no place on earth, there's no land with speech, shall we say, um, where this message has not reached because it is nature itself. Um, in verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth because, yeah, there is no place on God's earth where you can escape the majesty of his creation. Even in the most skyscraper-filled, you know, industrial-heavy place, you can still see the sky by day and the stars by night. Um, even indoors, we can see each other, you know, amazingly precise creations that are our human forms. Um, Spurgeon wrapped this up well, this section. Day bids us labor. Night reminds us to prepare for our last home. Day bids us work for God. Night invites us to rest in him. Day bids us look for endless day. And night warns us to escape everlasting night. Um, that descriptor there of the tent, I thought that was interesting. He's basically describing the night sky as a tent that contains the sun. Um, so to his eyes, he says it appears that the sun's like an athlete, right? He says the athlete wakes up, leaves his home, runs a marathon, returns to his tent. He's describing the day-night cycle to his eyes without full knowledge of the universe, because back then it looked like the sun went around the earth to a lot of people. But the fact of the matter is, even though he, to him it looked like the sun goes around the earth, not vice versa, he's still describing it as the sun and the earth being separate items within the canopy of the night sky. This is still, like, people love to, to point out and suggest that the Bible teaches things like flat earth, or it teaches things like, oh, well, it's not really a sky, it's just a black sheet draped over the world. No, this imagery is a universal image. This is like some actually pretty intense knowledge and conceptual ideas for someone without a telescope. <laughs> and even in all the way back then, you know? Um, oh, where was I? Lost my place. There we go. Um, so also too about the sun. Did anybody catch that he calls the sun a bridegroom? Which I thought was a little interesting. Um, that word for bridegroom is actually, it's called kathan. And it literally means daughter's husband. So the idea is that the son has kind of been presented to care for the earth in the way that a father would select a good husband for his daughter. So just it's further the idea that God has done what was, uh, everything God has done is with that fatherly love and planning, even in how he orders the universe. Um, which I thought was pretty cool, honestly. Uh, moving on. Oh, there we go. 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So 
In 7 to 9, we have a series of six descriptors of the law of the Lord, six praises for that law, and then six results. It's, we get law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear as in proper respect for a powerful king, and rules. Those are our descriptors. Then those things are defined as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. And when followed, they bring reviving to the soul, wisdom to the simple, rejoicing to the heart, lightning to the eyes, which could mean um, revitalization as in life, or it could also refer to gaining of knowledge, uh, enduring respect to God, and righteousness. Once again, a lot of, especially the first two parts of that, very much similar themes just repeated over and over again in different ways. Um, really there to, to drive home a point. Um, then note how he compares God's law to pure gold and pure honey, you know, the height of physical riches, the height of physical taste, but it's better than either of them. Now, take a second, especially if you've read the story of David and, uh, and his Psalms, do you ever recall David talking about his personal wealth? I'd admit you don't, but he was rich. He was immensely wealthy. He left a very successful kingdom to Solomon. Do you ever recall David talking about the great food or wine he had? I promise you he had the best. I guarantee it because he was king. But he never boasts about or barely even mentions either of those in all of his stories, in all of his psalms. Why? Because for him, the thing that you boast about, the thing that was so great to talk about was God. God was always the best thing in his life. God was always the thing that he was going to praise if he was going to praise anything. Um, I'll add that Spurgeon uh, summarized the two concepts of this uh, chapter so far, um, the teachings of the universe and the teachings of the law in this way. Uh, he said, he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. And then when we get to verse 11, uh, note that he kind of almost sneaks it in here. Uh, By them is your servant warned before going back to that reward language. Um, I think it's good for us. Uh, it is absolutely good for us to spend time reveling in the word of God, but we do have to be careful not to um, ignore the warnings against sin. If I spend all day in the word and I have so much love for others and generosity and I'm just living on how good it feels to do the good things in the Bible, but I ignore the warnings against evil and carry along with my good deeds a life of sexual promiscuity, I'm not actually loving God and his word. Those warnings, they're important to a true life. Um, and we did see this a bit in verse 9 where he mentions the fear of the Lord is clean and enduring. Um, the idea that, yes, this is a beautiful thing, but it is not to be taken lightly. And now, let's uh, wrap it up. Verse 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I sorry, uses that same language again from the last one. Um, who can discern his errors? I did kind of mention that already, the idea that you can kind of take that as, you know, 
who can show me or explain to me my errors. Um, he's speaking third person, basically. Uh, the his is related to your servant from the prior verse. The discern, it does mean to understand, but also has the idea of making known, not necessarily in an accusatory sense, but rev revelation for teaching and correction. Um, and the who points back to both the law of God and the whole universe that declares it. Um, secret faults, he mentioned secret faults. I think the, the best way I can explain this is to say very quickly, I'll try not to dwell on this too much. Uh, I was raised in a very Pentecostal environment. Um, so a habit I gained uh, from the fear that that tradition tends to teach, it usually accidentally, to be fair, um, was this idea of regularly asking forgiveness for any sins that I had done accidentally or unaware that I was sinning or had sinned and forgotten to ask forgiveness for, uh, the fear of which being that some unrepentant sin would have the power to drag me to hell. Um, so now this is an extreme thought process and I really don't want to present that as valid, but the idea of asking God indeed to forgive us for sins committed in error is a good thing, with the goal being that we realize and learn from them and move on from them. That's something that we should keep in mind. Christ died for our sins, so we don't need to worry about some ignorant offense invalidating our salvation, but our love for Christ should build in us a desire to better serve him by working to remove those sins of ignorance. Um, then he says uh, the presumptuous sins he wants to avoid. The word used there is misedem, uh, comes from the root word zede, which means, uh, it does mean arrogance, it means pride, it means insolence. Uh, it's the image of bold and contemptuous pride. The idea that I always have the right of it and I will not be stopped. Uh, it's the sin of doing wrong, even though you've already been warned or have even warned others yourself of the same sin because you don't feel accountable for it. Um, so of course, of course he asks for help with this sin. This is the sin that tells mankind that it doesn't need God's law, that we can live however we feel, that we don't need to be subject to a savior. That's what that is. Um, because it's only by obeying the law of God that leads to repentance through Christ's sacrifice that we can be, as he says, considered blameless and innocent of great transgression. Um, I'll wrap it up with uh, looking at the last verse there. It's a good reminder to us as we go about our days, I would say. May God let the words we speak, yes, that the things we do, um, but also the meditation of our hearts be acceptable. Uh, doesn't this remind you of something? Uh, I would say when Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look on someone with lust, you have sinned. That idea of guarding your hearts and desires, even here, even all the way back in the Old Testament, long before Jesus reclarified what it means to love God, we have this idea that if you guard your heart and thoughts closely, you will be less likely to stray. Um, and I think that is a really good place to end for tonight. Do we have any questions? Go ahead. Can you go over for Psalm 19, the three breakdowns? The th oh, oh the, the three kind of conceptual breakdowns I had? Yes, I can. Um, and I will say these are what jumped out to me. I am not going to try to declare that these are accepted widely by any scholars. But for me, it really seems that it's broken down into verses one to six, uh, 
um, which is easily summar summarized by the first line, the heavens declare the glory of God, um, the idea that nature itself declares God's majesty. Uh, verses 7 to 11, the first line being the law of the Lord is perfect, um, that idea that the law God has given us is right and true and precious beyond all else. And uh, finally, verses 12 to 14, who can discern his errors or who can bring understanding to my errors? Um, the idea, how do I stand up under this? Yes. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is this one of those phrases that we're looking at, oh, well, this is David talking about David, or is this one of these places where we can pull out and say that this is true for all believers? Mm, mm, yes, I think that does work. I think that's, he is speaking definitely of himself. You know, he is grateful for God's delighting in him again, because he recognizes his place before God. But um, I think, because that's the thing, I think this even, you know, it, 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 some say this, this even calls forward to Jesus a little bit, and then I don't see any reason why it wouldn't call forward to the believer at large. Um, you know, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Can't we all say that, especially those of us who have that salvation, you know? He delights in us. Why does he delight in us? Well, he delights in us because we gave heed to his call. You know, we, we understand that we have nothing apart from him. So he delights in us and he gives us that, that right to be delighted in by himself. Um, and he rescues us. Hey, even if at the very least, salvation is that rescue. Like I always say, if somebody has Jesus and suffers throughout this, their entire life on this earth, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the rescue that they have of eternity. So yeah, no, I think that's a fair way to look at it. Yeah. Yes. So in Psalm 18, in verse 25, specifically where it says, to the blameless, you show yourself blameless, mm -hmm. my first thought is God's always blameless. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. So why, I feel like it's a little strange that it said like, you're blameless. Sure. This is, I'm going to say is kind of uh, like a, like a Mobius strip concept. It kind of circles in on itself. Um, think about it this way. Uh, we are blameless before God because he has declared us blameless. He has declared us blameless because he himself is always blameless. We recognize that he is always blameless. How? Because he has declared us blameless. Because he has given us salvation and we have had the renewing of our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Those who do not have that salvation, how do they tend to look at God? They do not tend to consider him blameless. They tend to, to consider him abusive, angry, selfish, greedy. You know, they apply these things to him. God has not shown himself blameless to them because they don't deserve it, frankly. They're not willing to see him as blameless. It's only when he changes your heart and mind that you truly start to acknowledge him for who and what he is. That's a lot. Sure. <laughs> sure. Anything else? Yes, go ahead. Um, in Psalm 18 again, yes. verses in the 37, verse 40, um, just this whole chunk when David's talking, you know, I didn't, just the aggression that he presents with how violently he destroyed his enemies, and even um, 
Okay, it's not here, but another part he talks about how the Lord gave him vengeance sure. over his enemies. Yes. I know, and I think this is something that can be confusing throughout the Old Testament in many ways. How can we reconcile David really? I recognize it's not delighting in the violence sure. in and of itself, but how do you put this in a conversation with what we see in the New Testament, with Christ telling us to repeatedly forgive our enemies and mm. turn the other cheek with David rejoicing in God slaying his enemies? I, th I think the thing to kind of latch on to here, and yeah, this can be uncomfortable because once again, people don't want to see God as God and they don't want to see God's word as true and they don't want to acknowledge that if God declares something, it is true and it is right and it is good. Um, in the New Testament, we are no longer fighting for a physical land on this earth. So we have no need to draw blood. Um, so that is not a part of our mission. Our mission is to draw others into ourselves. We are not clearing out a space so that we can build a temple and we can build a castle and we can build a home. God's doing that for us. He's doing that in a land that needs no clearing out. Um, in the Old Testament, God promised Israel a land and that land was full of people who were vicious and violent and wicked and would stop Israel from taking the land God promised them. So that warfare was necessary and it was right and it was good. See, here's the thing too, at the same time, remember how God talks about bringing punishment onto the wicked? Well, to a degree, those were wicked peoples living in a land that God had promised someone else, continuing on in their wickedness and their debauchery. Israel became punishment to them for their wickedness and their debauchery. You'll note if you look at, you, you said it well when you said that we know that David's not reveling in the bloodshed. And we do know that because when we look, who does David get angry at? David gets angry at the people who defy God. When he's a young man and he walks up to the, the army, the stalemate before he slays Goliath, he hears him cursing God and mocking God and his people. And that sends David into a fury because, and not just because it's his people, it's not some nationalistic thing. He says, how can you let someone talk of God that way? You know, David's mad at people who mock God. David's victories is, so he, he does revel in the fact that God has slayed God's enemies, not necessarily his. Um, and even when he says vengeance, David asks for vengeance, but he recognizes a fact that's clarified other places in scripture, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Well, if David says, God, I'm seeking vengeance here, if God says, all right, I will make vengeance happen, David appropriately would say, okay, that was your vengeance. You, it was just because you said it would happen. Now, I didn't make it happen. I don't have the right to control God. I asked for something, he gave it, then it must have been the right thing. Uh, any other questions? All right, then we will stop there. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, Class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.